0: All right, it's great to see everybody this morning. Is it still uh, snowing behind me, or is that? That snowstorm has passed. It's so funny, I, I saw that earlier this morning, and I thought, you know, here we are in Southern California. We've never seen a day of snow in our lives, but we've, we've got it projected onto the screen back here. So, I mean, we've never seen a day of snow in our lives if we've, if we, if we've only been here. Of course, if you've been somewhere else, you have. Um, but excited about uh, the season as we 're coming into this Christmas season, and as I mentioned last week we 're going to be just for the next few weeks right leading right on up you know into Christmas and through christmas we 're just going to be focusing on the theme of the lord 's um, coming into this world, and so today we 're going to look at the passage that we read together this morning. That'll be our text this morning. And our our message this morning will be um, when God became a man. We're going to be looking at all the implications of that. So uh, right here in um, John's Gospel, chapter 1, let me just read again just the first few verses here. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only Son of God. Now, I like to, I like to, read, um, I like to read biographies. And, um, of course, in almost any biography that you would read... Uh, You're going to, at least at some point, they don't necessarily start with the the account of the birth of the person, but at at some point they actually take you back to uh, the the time when that that particular person was born. And and of course, that's understandable uh, for practically speaking, life for each of us begins at birth. Yet there is one person, there's one life, and only one in all of history, that that wouldn't be uh, the case with that one person. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. And so, although we have in the gospels, we have given to us in Matthew and Luke, we have uh, the accounts of the actual birth of Christ, John begins his gospel by taking us back even further. John takes us back to that period uh, prior to the Lord being conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He takes us back to the pre-existence of Christ eternally with the Father. And, and it's in these verses here in John chapter one that John gives us a summary of the life of Christ beginning with his preexistence and then coming uh, to his entrance into the human family for the purpose of making God known and making God known to man and reconciling man to God. And it's in this summary here in John's gospel. And I might say this is one of my, uh, of course, the gospel of John. I just, I love the gospel of John. I think it's it's probably is my favorite gospel. But this, the first uh, 18 verses really of this first chapter, it never ceases to uh, impact me as I read it. It's just such such a profound thing here. So it's in this summary that the veil is drawn back and the true nature of Christ is made clear. John does that right from the very beginning. You don't get that in the other gospels. It comes through later, but John starts with that. And so let's just look at um, a few of the verses here for a moment. And we're going to look at just a few of the statements that John makes, and then we want to see the application of them. So he starts with familiar words, especially to the Jewish audience that he would have uh, had in mind. In the beginning. Those are the words that he starts with. These words are a conscious reminiscence of the first words of the Bible, Actually, in the beginning was the Hebrew name for the book that we call Genesis. Uh, when, when, the, when, the, when the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek, uh, they, they took the name Genesis for the first book of the Bible, which means uh, beginnings. Uh, but the Hebrews, even to this very day, uh, the first book of the Bible is simply called in the beginning. So when John wrote here in the beginning, he was uh, intentionally wanting to draw people uh, back to the idea there in the first creation, but now he's talking about a new beginning, a new creation, but he uses that terminology uh, to make the connection there. And so like the first creation, the second is not carried out by some subordinate being, but rather it is carried out by uh, who John refers to here as the, the logos. And that's the, the Greek word that we translate as word here. So in the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the word. He was already there in the beginning. Now, why is Jesus referred to here? And and John is really the one who exclusively refers to Jesus as the word. No other gospel writer refers to him as the word. Um, None of the epistles really use this terminology. John is the only one who does it. And here, the the idea, the logos is the idea um, of communication. That's the The real point here. There was the belief among the Greeks that there there was a great mind, a legitimate belief. There's a great mind that that created everything, but that that mind communicated with man through the logos or the logos. So here uh, John is telling us about this word. If you think about it, of course, it's through words that we express ourselves to one another. Without words, just if we were a world with no words, if we had no ability to speak, or um, you would have to also include in that writing, I mean, essentially, we we really wouldn't have any means of communicating. Uh, we, We wouldn't have much of a world, would we? So when John says that in the beginning was the word he's telling us that Jesus is the means of God's communication to man. So all of the communication that has ever come to humanity from God has come to us through Jesus. But of course, uh, Jesus didn't come into the world as a human being until 2,000 years ago. But as we've already seen, he preexisted. And so, all of that Old Testament communication that we have written down for us uh, between God and man was always through the Word. So, every time we read in the Old Testament about uh, a word from the Lord or even an appearance of God to man in communication, we can safely say that it was Jesus who was the one who was doing that. He's the communicator, He's the revealer, He is the Word. And John tells us here that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here John makes a distinction. The Word was with God and the closest possible association that you could have. But then he says, and the Word was God. Now, of course, it's, it's the biblical revelation that teaches us that God is triune. And we commonly use the term the Trinity. Some theologians think we should use triune. They think that's a better uh, way to describe the nature of God. But what the Bible teaches is that there's one God who is somehow three distinct persons, or as my good friend Don Stewart likes to say, three distinct centers of consciousness. And so here the word was with God alongside of God in the closest possible relationship to God, and the reference here would be to the Father, but then also the Word was God. So here we see the the deity of Christ is being expressed. Now, nothing higher could be said. All that may be said about God may fitly be said about the Word. Now, occasionally there are those who would try to water down the statement here. Uh, some translations actually read, uh, and and the word, instead of saying, and the word was God, they read, and the word was divine. John is not merely saying that there's something divine about Jesus. John is affirming that Jesus is God. So, of course, this is just... Um, Christian Doctrine 101, really, the the deity of Christ. But yet, of course, we live in a world still today where people would dispute that. People would, uh, on the one hand, say it isn't true. Some would say, well, the Bible doesn't really teach that. Uh, Other religions want to put Jesus in the category of, well, he was a great man. He was even a great prophet, like some of the other great men or great prophets... But John dispels all of that right here in these first uh, few verses of his gospel. He declares unequivocally that the Word was God. And then verse 14, the great passage, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This, in my opinion, is the most profound statement ever made. You know, one of those times where Maybe you've had an experience where you're meditating on a portion of Scripture, and suddenly it just hits you like it never hit you before. And I remember some years back where thinking on verse 14, it just suddenly hit me in a way that it previously hadn't, just how how utterly profound this statement is. The Word who we see is, is with God in the closest most intimate association, but who is also himself God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal, unchanging, everywhere present, all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly pure, absolutely loving God became a man. And that's who Jesus is. He's God. He is the God-man. And so John makes that crystal clear here in the 14th verse. The word became flesh. And these four words, the word became flesh, they are the foundation of all our knowledge of God, of all our knowledge of man. They are the foundation of Uh, The relationship between God and man, they are the foundation, these four words, the word became flesh, they are the foundation of all our hopes, the guarantee of all of our peace, and the pledge of all of our blessedness. And those are the points that we want to now consider. First of all, the word became flesh. Jesus is the foundation of our knowledge of God. If you were to extract Jesus from the world, let's just say Jesus never came, what, would you, what knowledge of God would exist in the world today? Well, we, we would be left really with, um, well, we'd be left with two things. We'd be left with uh, the general revelation, which is the revelation that comes through creation, comes through the world that exists around us we might be able to uh, draw a few conclusions about God from, from nature, but we would also uh, be left with the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is, it's a wonderful revelation of God, but, but think about if that's all you had. If that's all you had, you you would be severely deprived of any real deep understanding of God because the the Bible is what what we call progressive revelation. The picture gets clearer the longer uh, things go. And so in the early stages of the revelation, uh, the picture was being painted, but it it wasn't clear. It's like when an artist is making a picture, uh, when it when they first begin to paint the picture, you might be sitting watching and you're completely baffled as to what this is going to look like. You you might even be looking at it thinking, I I don't see how this is gonna look like anything that's gonna be really uh, attractive or uh, even comprehensible. And so we have this same type of thing Throughout the centuries, God is progressively revealing Himself to us. But if you if you just stopped at the end of the New at the end of the Old Testament, now for us the end of the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, right? The prophet Malachi. Uh, For the Jews, they have the same books, but they have them in a slightly different order. So the end of the Old Testament for the Jews is the uh, the final chapter of Second Chronicles. So either way. If that's what you were left with, boy, you would be left really, really disappointed. You would be left uh, in, in a lot of uh, darkness still and a lot of mystery. That's what we would be left with. We might know from that revelation that that God is a, a powerful being. He's a creator. We would know that from... Um, general revelation and the scripture as well. Uh, We would know that he's uh, a judge. He's a righteous judge. We have, of course, numerous things in the Old Testament record that speak to us about him being a righteous judge. Uh, We would know that he had uh, at least previously dealings with a small segment of humanity. That would be the Jewish people. But apart from that, we would know uh, little to nothing else for certain. So if Jesus hadn't come into the world, our knowledge of God would be greatly diminished. But what do we know since Jesus did come? We know a lot. We know a whole lot about God. We know that God is not only a creator and a judge, we know that he is also a redeemer. We know that God doesn't only or didn't only love just a small segment of humanity, but we know that God loves all people, and we know that God loves all people because he sent his son into the world to die as a sacrifice for the sins of all people. And we know that that sacrifice was adequate, that it was sufficient, that it provided the necessary atonement for sin because God raised his son from the dead. We know through the Son of God that God is personal and that he longs to have a personal relationship with us. And that's what Jesus was teaching us while he was here. Jesus came and he brought us this uh, this clear understanding. And so, John, if we read a little bit further in the first chapter here, when we get to the 18th verse, John says, "No one has ever seen God." And I think we need to understand there that he's referring to the Father. No one has ever seen the Father, but the only begotten. God is actually what the Greek text says, but the only begotten God who is in the heart of the Father, he has declared him. So what Jesus did is he brought God out into the open for everybody to see. That's why later on in this gospel, when Philip says at a certain point to Jesus, he says, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be sufficient. And Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you don't know me? And then he said these words, he that has seen me has seen the Father. You can't get any clearer than that. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the foundation of our knowledge of God. If there's anybody in the world that wants to know about God, they need to go to Jesus to find out. He's the only legitimate means of attaining knowledge about God. He's the revealer. He's the word. So he's the foundation of our knowledge of God. Secondly, he's the foundation of our knowledge of man. In other words, Jesus is the the picture of what people were intended to be. You see, God created man, but it wasn't too long after the creation that man fell from his uh, position of favor with God and fell out of relationship with God and then continued to become less and less of what God originally intended. So Jesus comes into the world and one of the things that he does is he demonstrates what man was intended to be. And what did we see in Jesus? We saw a person who was entirely uh, dependent upon the Father. That Jesus expressed that over and over again. Uh, he, he would say things like, um, the words that I speak are not my words, but they're, but they're the words that the Father has given me. The works that I do, the miracles that he was doing and so forth. He said, they're not my works, but they're the works of the Father. So he was constantly expressing a dependency on the Father. And he also was showing us that man was intended to live not for himself, not for his own uh, glory, but man was intended to live for God and for the glory of God. And so Jesus would say, I always do those things that please the Father. He was always thinking in terms of glorifying the Father. So it's through Christ that we see what man was intended to be. Thirdly, Jesus is the foundation of man's relationship with God. Now, Jesus taught us about the fatherhood of God. The fatherhood of God and what Jesus was talking about uh, for us was the fatherhood in in a very personal sense. Among the Jews, no individual Jew would think of God as being their father. That to them would be almost blasphemous, to say something like that. If the average Jew referred to God as my father in a personal way, they would, they would have considered that blasphemy. Now, they saw themselves collectively as the children of God, and so they saw God as the father of the nation, but they did not think in terms of that kind of a personal, intimate relationship with God where you would actually call God your father personally. Well, Jesus did that over and over again. That was one of the things that bothered, uh, it more than bothered, it, it angered the uh, religious leaders of the day. The, this man's making himself out to be the son of God, like in a, in a uh, literal personal sense, as Jesus would speak of God as being his father. But that's exactly what Jesus taught would be the case for us as well, Right? He would talk to us about the care of a father. And so he would look at the, the animals and he would say, look at the birds. He would look at the flowers, things like that. Look at, look at, the, look at the birds, look at the flowers, look, look at nature itself. Look how your father takes care of these things. Will he not take care of you, O you of little faith? So Jesus started to teach people that they were to think in terms of God as being their father in a personal way. So Jesus came and he gave us this understanding of the kind of relationship that man and God are to have. He taught us about the fatherhood of God, but then... He made a way for us to become the children of God. And that's what John told us as we read here in um, the verses this morning. Here in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made by him. The world did not know him. He came to his own. They did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. So Jesus comes and teaches us about this whole new thing this personal relationship with God. God is going to become your father, and then he makes a way for that to happen. It happens by us receiving him. You see, this is the great uh, truth that so many people don't get. They don't understand. Even people that believe in God they think of God as distant. They think of God as inaccessible. They, they don't think in terms of God being uh, intimately involved in their lives as, a, as not just a father, but as a doting father, as a caring father, as a compassionate father, as a father who provides and as a father who protects and as a father who guides one through life and all of that. People, they don't think in those terms. This came to us through Jesus. He taught us this and he made the way for that to become a reality, by receiving Him, Jesus is also the foundation of all of our hopes. You know, I was thinking about this. What, what do people hope in today? When we look around at the world, when we see the the chaos and the confusion going on in the world today, what what are people hoping in? You know, we have these cultural elites who refer to themselves as progressives, and the progressives tell us that, you know, everything is actually getting better. The world is better today than it's ever been before, and it's just getting better all the time. I don't know what world they're looking at, but uh, the, the one that I'm looking at, it just doesn't seem to be getting all that much better. But this is, this is their thinking, and uh, they, they've got hope in what? They've got hope in broken political systems. They've, they've got hope in... Um, broken people as their hope they're thinking you know oh if we could just get this person elected into office this is really going to make the difference and you know all of the philosophies and everything that uh political philosophies and so forth that people operate by uh, most every one of them have already been tested and shown to be a failure so what do people hope in we look around the nation, and suddenly we've got all of this craziness going on. We've got protests, and we've got violent riots, and this is happening in our major cities. And we've got a, a resurgence of, of racial issues like we haven't had. I was talking to a friend of mine Friday, maybe some of you heard us on the radio program Friday, uh, speaking to Tony Clark, who pastors back in Virginia. Tony Clark's uh, an African-American pastor. He said, you know, the things that have happened in the last month, he said, in some ways, it's like they've set us back 50 years. I don't know if that's exactly true, but he's not the only one saying it. Other people are. So the question is, is there, is there any hope? Is there any hope that there is a better day? Is there any hope that there is a better life? Well, Jesus is the foundation of all of our hopes. He's the one that came into the world to solve these kinds of problems. And listen, he's going to do it. He's going to do it one day. Because John's telling us about his coming the first time, but of course, the Bible declares that he's coming a second time. So he is the foundation of our hope in that larger sense, the, the universal hope. But of course, we're all individual people, and it's through Christ that we have uh, the hope of forgiveness. You know what needs to happen for racial reconciliation, for example? There needs to be a lot of mutual forgiveness that takes place. How, did, how does that happen? People don't naturally, easily forgive other people that have hurt them or oppressed them or whatever they you know, feel has happened. So how does this forgiveness take place? Well, Christ enables us to forgive. He forgives us and then enables us to forgive others. So there's the hope of forgiveness. There's the hope of deliverance from sin and judgment. You see, what's really going on in our world, all of these problems are related to sin. Sin in the heart, and it's this vicious cycle of sin that just repeats itself over and over and over again throughout history. Jesus breaks that cycle. He delivers us from sin. He delivers us from the judgment that's coming, and we have through Christ the hope of eternal life. That's our ultimate hope, isn't it? Because one day doesn't really matter what's happening here in the world. It doesn't really matter who's protesting in the streets. It doesn't really matter about this injustice or that uh, inequality or whatever. One day you're going to be on your deathbed, and none of those things are going to matter. That's true with every single person. None of those things will matter at that point. What will matter at that point is whether my own sins have been forgiven. What will matter at that point is, is whether or not I have been delivered from the judgment to come. What will matter at that point is whether or not I have eternal life, and again, all of these things are ours through Jesus Christ. And so he is the foundation of all of our hope. Jesus is the guarantee of all of our peace. The, the longing in the world, I, I mean, in some cases, I, I can't say that this is a universal longing for peace. But of course, we know that many people do, at least they say they want peace in some cases, yeah, we want peace, but we want to kill these people first, you know, and then then we'll go for the peace thing. Uh or you know, we want peace, but first we wanna we wanna take vengeance on this group or or whatever. So, you know, we talk about the the universal longing for peace. I don't know how universal it really is. But let's just for the sake of argument say that, you know large numbers of people long for peace. But it it just seems to elude us. It it escapes us. We, We can't seem to get hold of it. Well, there is one who can bring it. That's the Prince of Peace. Remember, that's one of the names given to Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. And what is absolutely certain is that peace will come. What is also absolutely certain is that it will never come apart from Christ, but it will come because, as I said a moment ago, Christ will return, and he's going to set up a kingdom of peace. Remember, he's the prince of peace, and of the increase of his government in peace, there will be no end. But that's not here yet. That's still in the distance. We don't know how far in the distance it is, but here's the good news. We can have peace within because the whole problem with all of this conflict is really due to the fact that we have no internal peace, so we're at war with other people. We have no internal peace because we're at war with God. But Jesus, he brought us peace. Remember Ephesians 3, he is our peace. Paul says, having been justified by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God, resulting in peace within, leading to peace with others. So he is our peace. And it's so powerful to see people whose lives have been impacted uh, by the Prince of Peace, people who, who previously were at war with other groups of people, perhaps. People who were at war, uh, even maybe within the, the context of their own home, where it was just a war zone, constant fighting and bickering and violence and all of that. And the Prince of Peace comes and he brings peace in that situation. These are the kinds of things that Jesus does for us. These are the kinds of things that he guaranteed. And then Finally, Jesus is the pledge of all of our blessedness. All of the blessings that God has promised to us are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He's the one through whom all the blessings come. You know, we sometimes sing that song, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above you, heavenly Host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Yes, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's from God that the blessings come, but Jesus is the channel. Jesus is the one who uh, enacted the, the plan and the purpose of God to bring us the blessing. And they all come to us through him. Now, here's the thing that I want to really zero in on as we wrap things up this morning. This message is available to anyone today who will lay hold of it. You see, the world continues to go on in the state that it's in, and people, uh, pe- people's lives go on in this negative state that they're in because of their refusal to embrace the word who became flesh. But that's not the case with us. It it certainly uh, is not the case with many of us, uh, probably most of us here today. Um, It doesn't have to be the case with anybody. You see, all of the blessings that God intended by the word becoming flesh, yes, they will at some point become universal, but they are available to each individual person right now. That's the beauty of the whole thing. You see, he was in the world, but the world did not know him. And what was true 2,000 years ago is, is still true today, isn't it? The world doesn't know him. The world doesn't know Jesus. The world uh, doesn't even consider Jesus. If you were to go before Congress today and say, listen, I have the solution to all of our social problems. Here, let me read it to you from the Bible. Oh, they'd throw you out in a heartbeat, right? They'd laugh you to scorn. And when it's suggested that, you know, well, Jesus is the answer. An interesting thing, though, that I've been noticing in a lot of the interviews I've been watching um, with the media and so forth with the news people, you know, they're, they're talking to Christian leaders, and especially from the African American community. They're talking to some of these Christian leaders who are saying, "Listen, this is a sin problem. Listen, this is something that only God can deal with." And you know, it's interesting because some of these people are sort of, you know, nodding in in agreement, like, "Yeah, maybe you're right." And we tried everything else, and nothing works. Maybe, Maybe, maybe you guys are onto something here. Well, of course, we're onto something here because He made the world. This is this is God. So he's in the world. The world was made by him. The world didn't know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as would receive him, to them he gave the right, the power, the authority to become the children of God. So here's my point. We should not... Be moved by what's going on in our world as though we don't have hope or a savior or the solution or the confidence that it's all going to get taken care of. You know, God's intention is that we rejoice in Christ today. And we should all already know that the world is only going to get worse before it gets better. So rather than living in anxiety, rather than being weighed down with the burden of what's happening. You know, I, I think that so much of what's going on right now could potentially spoil our celebration of, of this season. You know, all of these things that are happening, and we look at this and, and we get all depressed about it. And, uh, you know, what, what hope is there? Let's not forget what hope there is. Our hope is built on Christ. Our hope is built on the Word who was with God and was God becoming flesh and dwelling among us and allowing us to behold his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is available to us and it's there to bless anyone that will embrace him today. The simple fact of the matter is the world is in the mess that it's in because it refuses to reach out to the savior, the word made flesh, but we haven't done that. We've reached out to him. Hopefully every one of you have done that. If you haven't done that, you need to do it. You can do it today, but we have. So all of these things, we know God. We have a relationship with God. We have hope. We have uh, confidence that there's blessing ahead. We know that it's not a gloomy, dark future. We know that it's a glorious future where Christ will come again and he will set up the kingdom. And Christmas is really, you know, if you think about it, Christmas is the inception of all of that. It's, it's the beginning of all of that. Christmas was the first coming of Jesus into the world, but of course, it was all in preparation ultimately for the second coming. And this long interim period that we've been living in is really just a season where God is inviting as many people as would come to become his children through faith in Christ, by receiving him? And that's the question that I close with today. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Have you received his grace today? Have you received it? You see, there's a point where you have to personally receive this. You don't become a child of God because your parents are Christians, or your grandparents, or somebody in your extended family. You don't become a child of God because you attended a a church, or you were maybe baptized or christened as a child. No, you become a child of God through personal faith in Jesus Christ. You receive Him, to as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the children of god you receive christ and you enter into this whole world that prior to this moment you you really can't even grasp that it's a reality you you can't even really imagine it what it, what it would be like to have god as my as my loving heavenly father well it's a concept that's it's almost beyond being able to be uh, verbally described, it's something that you have to experience. But when you experience it, like, oh, how glorious it is. We just had some friends staying with us from Spain, a couple um, really dear friends of ours. And um, a while back, they adopted a little boy. His name's Jonathan. And Jonathan comes from a family of uh, like five kids, I think. And You know, parents are a wreck, alcohol and violence and all of these things. And this this poor little kid. I mean, he just you know gone through so many things uh, at at an early age with neglect and abuse and all of those things. Um, But he's been brought into this family, and this little boy is he is thriving just as a a beautiful little human being, he's thriving on the love of his parents. And he's particularly connected with Raphael, his dad. And there's just, you see this love bond between this father and this little boy. And my point is that two years ago, I don't think little Jonathan had any concept of how great a relationship could be with with parents because his parents were an absolute nightmare. So for him, parents meant trouble, grief, fear, all of those things. But now he's come into a relationship with real parents who love him. And I'll tell you, he is having the time of his life, this little guy. He's being loved and he's blossoming. And it's such a a beautiful thing to watch. And you know, that's what happens with us. We don't know the half of it. But when we come in and we begin to experience the love of God the relationship with God that he intends for us, the father-child relationship through receiving Christ, man, it's a whole other world. There's nothing like it. It's so beautiful. And it's available to everybody. So that's our message. For the broken world that's trying to figure out how do we move forward, hey, it's the same message that's always been around. It's been around for 2,000 years. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And as many as would receive him, to them he would give the right to become the children of God. That's what Christmas is all about, becoming the children of God. Lord, thank you for that great reality that we have become your children. Lord, that This isn't about religion, really, or it's not what people so often think of it as being. We joined a church or we got religious or we're we're not doing bad things. We're now trying to do good things. All of the mistaken notions that people have. Lord, you know we're talking about something so much more glorious than any of that. We're talking about a relationship with the one who made us and the one who made everything else, heaven and earth. Thank you, Lord, for the reality of that relationship. And Lord, I know that many today are are living in that and they're experiencing it and they're rejoicing in it and they're flourishing in it like Jonathan is in his new home. But Lord, I would imagine that there are perhaps those here today as well who have yet to receive you, yet to receive your gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, yet to receive that transition into the family of God, help them today to receive you and thereby to receive all of the blessings that you brought with you when you came into this world. And while we're praying today, if uh, you're here if you haven't received Christ personally, if there's never been a moment where you said, Jesus, I, I want to receive you into my life. I want you to forgive my sins. I, I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. I don't understand it, maybe, but I, but I, I just, to the best of my ability, I believe it. I, wa- I want to receive you. If you've never done that, do that right now. Here's your opportunity to do that. Say this prayer with me if that's you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for me. Thank you that you came into the world so you could die. Thank you that you died for my sin and that you rose from the dead. Forgive my sins and be my savior. I receive you today and I thank you. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand together.